So don't forget to hug your youth leader. And the story continues. Districts is really a fun uh, event. Uh, it's very significant spiritually. And the truth is most of you adults would love it. But it's not for you. You have to go as a servant of Jesus as a, as a leader. And that's, you have to serve all year before we let you do that. So, Bridge Kids, you are dismissed. And as they're leaving, let me remind you how important our congregational meeting is today at 4 o'clock. I know meetings sometimes sound boring. This is very important to the life of the bridge. Um, we have 63 members who have completed our membership class. And uh, we, we have a quorum that's required for us to carry on business. We need 32 uh, people present as members or the whole meeting is a waste. If we have 31, we can't, con- we can't even approve the minutes. And our agenda is uh, to affirm four elders and approve the 2014 budget. So, and we're going to have a reflection of 2013 and uh, it's going to be a significant time. Please make that a priority uh, if, you, if you can. So you know what happens is, is it's easy for a couple to be members and then one of them decide to stay home. And so only one comes and pretty soon we're missing a lot of people. Okay, here we go. Mark, the gospel of action. Anybody need a Bible? Because we're going to follow the text and it's not, not going to be on the screen. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We're glad to hand, hand it out to you. If, you. if you need a scripture, it's okay. The Bible teaches that man is created in the image of God. It is dangerous when man creates God in his image. Max Lucado catches this beautifully in his book, Six Hours, One Friday. And listen to this. Here's what he says. For some, Jesus is a good luck charm. The rabbit's foot redeemer, pocket size handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put his picture on your wall or you can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You can frame him, dangle him from the rearview mirror or glue him to your dashboard. His specialty is getting you out of a jam. Need a parking place? Rub the redeemer. Need help on a quiz? Pull out the rabbit's foot. No need to have a relationship with Jesus. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four-leaf clover. For many, he's an Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New jobs, pink Cadillacs, new and improved spouses. Your wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently re-enters the lamp when you don't want him around. For others, Jesus is a Monty Hall redeemer. That may be a little dated. All right, Jesus, let's make a deal. For 52 Sundays a year, I'll put on a costume coat and tie. I'll endure any sermon you throw at me. In exchange, you give me the grace behind pearly gate number three. So it's dangerous when man creates God in his image. The Jesus of the New Testament is not easy or convenient. His purpose is not to get us out of jams and finding us parking spots or fulfilling our wishes and making us happy. His purpose was to proclaim the good news, be the good news, and transform us to become the good news. In Mark chapter 1, our passage today, verses 21 through 39, we see Jesus comes with his own agenda for good news, 
and it comes with authority. So let's turn to Mark uh, chapter 1. First we see Jesus has authority over demons. Um, Verse 21 says, They went to Capernaum when the Sabbath came, and Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Um, Just as a reminder, let's look at a map. You have a map up here? There we go. So this is from the last couple of weeks. And um, we'll start at the bottom left. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. Go up towards the top on the left. And um, then he was baptized about the age of 30 uh, in, in the Jordan River just east of Jericho toward the south. And now he goes to Capernaum, see at the top? And that becomes Jesus' headquarters. And just want to remind you, it's good to get familiar with uh, the biblical layout of the land of Israel. And it's really easy. Most of you have maps at the back of your Bible. You know, sometimes people say, I read until I got to maps. Maps are just there as a helpful tool, but it really helps you understand what's happening in the text as you follow along a map. And so this is uh, where Jesus is now. He's at uh, a town called Capernaum. Uh, Josephus says Capernaum could have been, they called these villages, but they were heavily populated, 15,000 people in a town like Capernaum in the first century. Um, Capernaum was the home of Simon and Andrew, James and John. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. It was the Sabbath day. Sabbath day is the sixth day of the week. It would have been a Saturday, and it was a day of rest. According to the law, that meant they shouldn't work. It was a day set aside to go to synagogue. For an Old Testament Jewish person, the synagogue was like church for us. Interesting thing is, synagogue intended to be um, a gathering of Jewish people for worship, It was a group of people. In fact, they they were established when there were 10 or more males in one location, they could establish a synagogue. But the word synagogue became like for us, church. It became not only a gathering of people, but it became the building. And uh, so we sometimes people call certain churches and they, they think of the building. And synagogue got used that way as well. It was a gathering place for prayer and for reading of the scripture and then talking about it and teaching about it and discussing the scripture. They did sermon-based groups right there at the synagogue. Jesus, as a Jewish man, would have been given permission. He wouldn't have gotten up to teach without permission. And so the ruler of the synagogue, the one in charge, would have given Jesus permission to teach. Jesus' teaching was different than they were used to. Um, For... For some reason, it was simple and made sense. It was not like what they were used to. The scribes or the teachers of the law had this practice of impressing people and being very knowledgeable. And what they would do when they read a scripture text is they quoted an interpretation from another teacher, another author, something that was in print, 
and they would memorize it, and they would quote it. So it wasn't like the scribe actually had studied the scripture and came to an interpretation, but it would use interpretations of other people. And so if you had a question, you would often just get a quote from some former scholar. And it wasn't like answering the question. It was like, okay, here's another quote, which uh, sometimes wasn't that helpful. Jesus was explaining the scriptures like they had never understood before. Uh, He did it with authority. Verses 23 through 26, his authority is tested. His authority is tested. Look at verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now look at this. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, you know, on this day, the synagogue, Saturday, something unusual happens. Somebody in the worship service who is demonized speaks out. One who had an impure spirit, referring to a demonic spirit. The Bible has a lot to say about demons. Demons are fallen angels. They're angels who follow Satan and not God. They're, They're real spiritual beings. They're created beings. They were created intentionally to serve God, and they chose to rebel. Um, They have a personality. They have emotions and intellect and a will. They're spiritual. They're not necessarily visible. It's possible they could be visible. That's not normal. Um, And here is a man who uh, sometimes people say possessed. I like the concept of demonized, uh, controlled, influenced, empowered, such that this demon is able to speak through this man at the synagogue. Both Jesus' presence and his words agitated this man. The demon spoke surprising words. What do you want with us? It's like, whoa, this is way beyond what Jesus was teaching about. It's like this guy just pops up. It's like he can't control. He has, to, he has to do this. He has to speak out. What do you want with us? It's plural. There's only one man here. Does that mean there are more than one demon? I think he's speaking for the, a bigger group than just the person, the, the, the uh, spirit in this man. And first he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. This is the human title for Jesus. This is Jesus from Nazareth. That's, that's accurate. Have you come to destroy us? It was a matter of fact that Jesus had. He came to destroy the devil and the works of the devil. Now, Jesus has already had an encounter with Satan. Remember that? He was t- tested. He was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. We've already, we've already talked about that. And Jesus came out uh, approved of God. He came out he, victorious. Uh, the devil left him. The devil couldn't, couldn't accomplish anything with Jesus. And the word has gotten out in the spiritual world. I remember reading this for the very first time as a brand new Christian. This totally made sense to think, here's what's happening. A demon recognizes Jesus and who he is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's saying, you are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the Son of God. You are God in the flesh. I know who you are. The people don't get it. 
The audience has not understood who Jesus is, but this demon gets it. Um, So the demon himself describes Jesus as human, Jesus of Nazareth, but he also describes him as God, uh, the Holy One of God. Jesus responds in verse 25, Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The man violently, uh, the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Jesus spoke simply and directly, but sternly. Be quiet. Be muzzled. Shut up. Don't speak. And then he said, come out of him. That's all he had to do was to command the demon to come out of him and the impure spirit left him. This was a powerful demonstration of Jesus' authority in the spiritual realm. Jesus spoke and the demon obeyed. Jesus encountered Satan previously. I just mentioned that. Uh, now the word was out. The demon knew who Jesus was. And the, and the demon understood right then better than the audience understood who Jesus was. Verses 27 through 28, his authority is recognized. Look at verse 27. The people were all so amazed they had to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to the impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Um, let's look at a map again. So just think, of, when you talk about the region of Galilee, just think about the land mass directly around the Sea of Galilee. So it's northern Israel. And this is going to be an important focus in Jesus' ministry for the next couple of years. Um, and, and news got out about him quickly. Uh, this was a very impressive event in Capernaum. The news was good news, by the way, that Jesus had the ability to deliver someone from a demonic spirit. But the news that spread, maybe not exactly the same good news that Jesus was preaching. This was impressive in Capernaum. They they had seen exorcists before. This would not have been strange to know about exorcisms. Exorcists would practice rituals and incantations, speak special words to try to manipulate a demonic force. But Jesus just said, leave. And the spirit obeyed. This was new. It was curiously interesting. So Jesus has authority over the demons. Jesus has authority over disease as well. Verses 29 through 34. Mark is very clear about separating um, disease from the demonic. And sometimes critics of Scripture want to just go back and say, well, those people in the first century, you know, they weren't very smart, and they just thought people with demonic behavior, uh, those were just illnesses, mental health issues, and uh, they just didn't understand, so they called them demonic. Mark is very clear about making a distinction between about health issues and spiritual issues, the demonic issues. First we see verses 29 through 31, his authority over sickness. Another thing, when you think about Jesus, a lot of you have known about Jesus since childhood Sunday school. You've heard about Jesus for a long time. Think about what it would be like if you had been there in the synagogue 
This is the first time you've encountered Jesus. This is, this is an amazing thing that's happening. And what is about to happen, and what a lot of people in this community of Capernaum were witnessing. Verse 29. And here's, here's Mark, the gospel of action. As soon as they left the synagogue, things happen quickly in Mark. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So, Simon and Andrew live in Capernaum. Matter of fact, James and John do also. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. Now, that's not just a high temp. You know, oh, no big deal, just 101. No, when they talk about a a fever, they were talking about a serious illness. They didn't know that what what the... um, average human temperature should be. But the word fever here is a serious illness. It could be various kinds of fever that could be terminal. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately, there's that action again from Mark, told Jesus about her. So he went um, to her, he took her hand, and helped her up. And that's all there was to it. This Jesus just keeps moving. That's the picture that Mark is presenting. Um, doesn't, he doesn't waste time. And uh, he went to her. He took her hand and he helped her up. And Jesus didn't even have to speak. And the fever left her and she began to wait on him. Now, this is not like the most important miracle that ever happened in the Bible. That a woman had a fever and Jesus picked, took her hand and had her stand up. Like, why do you think this is important? Whose mother-in-law is this? It's Peter's. And by the way, Simon, I, let me just say it, Simon and Peter are the same person. Simon, Peter. Uh, later he'll be called Peter uh, by Jesus. But it's the same person. We, we hear about it because it's Peter's mother-in-law. And Peter is telling the story to Mark. And it's, it's action-based because that's how Peter thinks and that's how Peter remembers the story. It's Jesus just kept doing these things. And he wants everybody to know. And by the way, this impacts families, doesn't it? This impacted Peter's family. Jesus came and healed his mother-in-law. Um, there's a lesson here. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. It's not like she needed uh, recuperation or recovery. She was healed. She, was, she wasn't contagious. She was backed to 100%. And what does she do? She serves. You know, Jesus doesn't just heal people so that they can be happy or answer prayer so that people can get what they want. Jesus' desire is to transform people He proclaimed the good news. He was the good news. His desire is for us to be the good news. Uh, What if Jesus healed you of, say, terminal cancer? Would you serve him? What if Jesus did a major miracle in your life? Maybe it was a major financial provision. Would you serve him? What if Jesus healed a severely broken marriage. Would you, would you serve him? Now, here's what I want to say. Jesus 
today is the very same Jesus he was in Mark chapter 1. He has not changed. And he is worthy of our serving him. And you and I, you and I may not have a major miracle happen in our life. I, I, talk, I think in terms of my miracles that happen in my life, I, I call class B miracles. Class A is parting of the Red Sea. My wife would say me coming to faith in Christ was class A. Uh, dramatically changed our marriage. But Jesus works to transform people to be his followers. His authority is to recognize in verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought Jesus, all the sick, and demon-possessed. So here in Capernaum, Peter's, at Peter's house, things to get, begin to get busy. Evening after sunset. Why was that? Well, this was the Sabbath day. And you don't work on the Sabbath, so you can't carry bodies around on the Sabbath. You have to wait until the next day. When's the next day begin? At sunset. Then you can work. So they wait until sunset because they've got to obey the law. They don't want the scribes on their case. And so at sunset, they start carrying sick people or bringing a demon-possessed person. And they want to bring them to Jesus, which is a pretty good idea. Um, verses 33 and 34, his authority demonstrated in healing many. The whole town gathered at the door, probably hyperbole, meaning it was a huge crowd at the door. I would guess hundreds and hundreds and thousands. Um, the whole town. The point is there was a great number of people who came out. Jesus likely spent hours touching people and bringing healing to their lives. His authority was demonstrated by performing miracles in healing people of various diseases. Verse 34, his authority continually demonstrated over the demonic. Look at 34. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now here again, Mark clearly separates the issue of healing illnesses versus uh, delivering people from the demonic. He clearly separates them. Um, this, Jesus was amaz amazing. He was knowledgeable and wise. He was humble, loving, and kind. He was patient with people and compassionate. Here he continue, continued to show his authority over demons. But interestingly, he would not let them speak. Why do you think that is? Why wouldn't Jesus uh, let demons speak? I mean, this one demon spoke and said, uh, this is Jesus of Nazareth. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Are you going to destroy us? I mean, boy, that, that was, seemed to be right on from my perspective. That nailed exactly who Jesus is and why he's here. I think there are two, possibly a couple of reasons why Jesus didn't want the demon to speak or any other demons. Jesus had this great sense of timing. We see that clearly in the Gospel of John. Uh, he moved in his ministry and he was waiting for right timing before he exposed people to more information. And so he had a sense of, at times we would say, veiling his ministry or the program of God. He spoke in parables. He was veiling some of the truth. 
Those who were interested could come and find out answers, but if you're not interested, you're left in the dark. So there's that sense of Jesus' ministry. And then there's this other thing is, this to me makes the most sense. Would you want a demon giving testimony about you? I mean, how, how far do you think we could base uh, Jesus' credibility on demons? On this case, they were accurate. It's sort of like first encounter face-to-face, overwhelmed with the presence of Jesus, they speak the truth. But over time, demons deceive and distort, and they're going to be distorting Jesus and distorting the message. In no way does Jesus want his credibility to come from the demonic. And he, he commands them to be silent. They would start creating Jesus in their image, not in God's image. Another question is, what is the purpose of miracles? Jesus performed many miracles. And uh, sometimes people want to duplicate all that today. Um, What was the purpose of miracles? And the way I understand uh, Scripture, the purpose of miracles or signs is to authenticate the message and the messenger. The purpose of miracles. Another, Another word for miracles are signs, the miraculous. Why the miraculous? And the purpose is to authenticate. It's God at work through the miracles, and they were attention getters. It was like speaking to the nation Israel. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 1, Apostle Paul says, uh, the Jews seek for a sign. The Jews look for miracles. That's how they can tell God is at work, when they see miracles. That was their nature. The, The Gentiles or the Greeks seek wisdom. They want to think. They want intellectual answers. They don't want miracles. But the Jews, Jewish people, do. And that was the nature of the Jewish religion. Um, It had happened in the Old Testament on many occasions. There was a great flood, and God saved Noah and his family and repopulated the earth. Um, One of the most spectacular is the story of Moses and Moses' encounter with Pharaoh. And uh, one of the first things that happens to Moses, God wants to send Moses to deliver Israel. And uh, Moses says, I'm not a good speaker. They won't believe me. He's saying, I'm not credible. And then God tells him he's going to give him two signs. He says, Moses, take your hand and put it into your cloak. Puts his hand in his cloak. He pulls it out and it's leprous, which was a little bit scary. And he says, Moses, take your hand and put it back in your cloak. Put it back in and pulled it out. It was healed. What was that? It was a miracle. It was a sign. Who was it for? It was for the nation Israel so that they would listen to Moses. Okay, Moses, that's not enough. Take take your staff that's in your hand, wooden staff, throw it on the ground. He did, and it turned into a snake. That's a little bit scary. And then he says, Moses, pick it up. Oh, I don't know if I want to do that, Lord. And so he reaches down, he picks it up, and it turns back into a staff. What is that? It's a miracle. And the purpose was just to show Israel the nation to listen to Moses, listen to his message. He's going to speak for me. That happened in uh, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And now comes Jesus. This is the most important thing ever happening in the Bible to this point. And it's just like everywhere Jesus goes comes the miraculous. Why? Because God is saying, wake up, pay attention, 
I am doing a great work. Listen to this person. And uh, during the life of Jesus, miracles were just happening, happening all the time. During those three years, it was just kind of normal. And then we have the start of the church in the book of Acts. And, and miracles continue through the apostles. Why? Because God is doing a new thing and he's, and he's speaking to the nation Israel, the Jewish people who seek for signs. Wake up, Israel. You missed your Messiah. I'm going. In Isaiah, God said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go outside to the nations and I'm going to speak to you with other tongues. And, and, and God would give signs to speak back to Israel. Wake up. The miraculous is happening. God is doing a new thing. Um, the book of Revelation is going to be a very supernatural time in the future. When Jesus comes again, a lot of supernatural stuff. Can God do miracles today? Absolutely. God can do whatever He wants. He can, he can heal. He can do whatever He wants. I don't think it's as quite as normal as when Jesus walked the earth because I think God was doing something entirely new and getting everybody's attention. Remember, only the Old Testament existed when Jesus walked the face of the earth. We have all of the scripture today. We have the whole story and we have the future. I think we're going to have a whole lot more miracles in the future. So that's my two cents. Thank you for asking. Um, we come to the last point, verses 35 through 39. Jesus recenters and refocuses his authority through prayer. And we see his practice of prayer in verse 35. Very early in the morning... While it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and walked to a solitary place where he prayed. Remember, Jesus had had a very full day of ministry. It was a Sabbath day, started at the synagogue. He encountered a man that was demonized and delivered the man from that, the power of that spirit. After that, they went to lunch at Peter's house. There he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And all that was just attracting attention. Everywhere Jesus went, the people were clamoring. And then at sundown, you know, pretty tiring day with lots of people around him. Uh, then it begins. And, and then just hundreds of people come to be healed. And Jesus healed them and he cast out demons. It was a long day. I don't know how long it was. But he doesn't sleep in. Very early in the morning. Some commentators say as early as 4 o'clock in the morning during that time of the year before, because it's before sunrise. While it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house. It was Simon Peter's house. And then he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Um, Jesus made it his practice to get up and to separate himself from people and spend time with his father. He wanted solitude to be with the one who had sent him. He needed to be recharged and recalibrated and recentered. And by the way, I, I just read about a church in England that's selling a CD. And if you want to do this, you can. You can go online and buy this. You can get a CD of 30 minutes of silence. They, they uh, taped a church in England, in Sussex, England, a large Anglican cathedral, and they just taped the sounds. 
and they have one minute opening instruction and then you have 28 minutes of like sitting in the sanctuary of this large church with nobody there and people walking in the background and then they have a one minute closing talk and you can buy that and you can have the same solitude the kind that Jesus sought and people are paying good money for that. Um, You know, the Bible tells us that we need to do those kinds of things that Jesus did. Jesus uh, took time to separate himself from noise and from busyness to slow down and to reconnect with the one who sent him, the one who gave him uh, his mission. The Bible tells us that we need to do that. One of the passages that always grabs my attention is 1 Timothy 4, 7. Uh, and Paul tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly. Getting up uh, and getting away and making time for prayer with the Father is a discipline. Discipline usually means that you do it intentionally, you structure it, you plan it, and you repeat it, you practice it. That's what athletes do when they train. They practice and they practice and they practice. That's what musicians do when they train. They practice and they practice and they practice. And Paul tells Timothy, train yourself. That's something. Uh, the application for us is you and I have to do something. We have to take action. We have to initiate something in our own lives. It's not like sitting and waiting for a feeling. Do I feel like praying today? You know what? I just may not feel like praying today. But what if I have a discipline? I have brought a structure into my life. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training, what kinds of things would train yourself to be godly? Well, prayer would be one of those things. Reading Scripture would be one of those things. Memorizing Scripture would be one of those things. And there are things that we can do to help us grow, help us stay centered. But it's an activity we have to choose to do. Physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So being godly today is going to impact your future, and it's going to impact heaven for you as well. Not being godly today is also going to impact heaven for you. I'm not saying you won't be in heaven if you're a follower of Christ. I'm saying God is going to honor godly people one day in heaven. Train yourselves to be godly. You know, some of you are training to run or walk the Eau Claire Marathon, the half marathon, right? Some of you are, I know that. And to do that, you have to, what? Train. You're going to have some kind of an exercise program. You might do some cross training, but you're going to do some walking. You're going to do some running. And if you're smart, you won't try to run 13 miles this week or uh, in one day unless you've really been doing a lot of training. If you're smart, you'll, you'll do it easy. You know, people have learned to run a marathon 26.2 miles by starting out by walking two blocks because that's all they could do at first. But over time, people get stronger, they develop stamina, they develop endurance, and they can finish the whole race. So some of you who aren't in shape but think you should consider doing the half marathon, you could do it. But spiritual training is like that. Um, if you train yourself to be godly, you will become stronger. You will have more endurance. Um, Prayer will become easier. You get better at it. You understand more about how prayer works. And uh, just a question for you. What will you do in 2014 to be more like Jesus when it comes to prayer? 
It's up to you. Verses 36 and 37, we see his well-intentioned campaign managers. Jesus had campaign managers. Verse 36, Simon and his companions. Who's Simon? He's Peter. Why is he first? Because he's telling the story. Story. We don't even get the list of the other people. It's just Peter and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. What are you doing out here? This is, this is not a good program you've got going here. If, if you knew how to do this, you'd be back with the people. You'd be helping them. Because they're, they're loving this. They, they want to be with you. They want you to heal them. Go back. Probably not very impressive uh, for Jesus. Um, he had another plan for the Messiah campaign. Verses 38 and 39, we see his focus. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else. Just exactly the opposite of what Peter wanted. You see, Jesus had just spent time with the Father. He knew he needed to get recenter. And yes, it might have been attractive to go back and be where people wanted to be with him and he could have success. But that's not how God was leading him. And he knew to be on his mission, he had to go somewhere else, to the nearby villages. Why? So I can preach there also. That is why I've come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, that whole northern part of Israel, around that Sea of Galilee. A lot of villages there. The tremendous fishing in the Sea of Galilee, which is just a lake, by the way. And um, towns prospered all around that. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. This was just norm for him. Um, Jesus didn't want to go back to Capernaum and take, take advantage of the momentum. He will, he will come back later. Jesus had been with his father and he now was clear on his next steps. He continued to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God is near, to call people to repent and believe. This is really important. Jesus was looking for people who would repent, meaning they would turn from what was most important to their life and put the kingdom of God with its king as number one. The people in Capernaum were nice people, but like most people, they were not interested in what Jesus was doing. They were interested in what Jesus could do for them. Jesus came to Capernaum and he did what he came to do, and now he must leave he must uh, continue on continue talking about the good news that the kingdom of God is near that the king is present it was not like the kingdom that they had hoped for they had hoped from passages in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and do a military takeover run out their enemies, and life would be, they could live happily ever after. They would be prosperous. Jesus' kingdom was different. It was about the rule of God uh, in people's heart. Think about this. The rule of God in people's hearts. It was about changing people's hearts, not their income. 
It was about changing people's character with love, compassion, kindness, gentleness, peace, and patience. When the kingdom of God has influence, that's what happens. People's lives are transformed. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 is what Jesus had intended. He actually uh, spoke these words in a synagogue in Nazareth where he was raised. This, this happens before Capernaum. This, is, this passage happens in Luke, by the way. But here's what it said. 800 years before the birth of Christ, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The Spirit has anointed Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Christ means. The anointed one. He's Messiah, the anointed one. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Remember what happened at his baptism? The dove-like uh, symbol came from heaven, and it was the Holy Spirit, and it rested on Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news. What's he been doing? In Mark chapter 1, proclaiming the good news, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Well, that's kind of different than killing all the enemies. Um, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for, for the prisoners. When he told demons to leave, that's exactly what he was doing. He was freeing people who had been prisoners and slaves to darkness. Next slide. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. To proclaim grace. God's favor. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Behold, the king is here. Repent and believe. Forgiveness is here. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Jesus never shied away from teaching about judgment. And if you read the book of Matthew and some of the parables, he spent a lot of time uh, telling that when he comes a second time, it will be a time of judgment. So here's a question. What do you want from Jesus? Do you want him to fix your problems and give you a nice life? A lot of people, that's all they want. Or do you want to follow him? You want to let him walk in front and you walk behind closely, joining him in being good news and proclaiming the good news. Michael Hart wrote a book entitled The 100. In this book, he asked a provocative question, who were the top 100 people to influence history? Who made the biggest impact? Who were the most influential? Um, and Michael Hart uh, is an astrophysicist and not necessarily a Christian. He included people like Sigmund Freud, Louis Pasteur, uh, the prophet Muhammad, Sir Isaac Newton, and he ranked Jesus as number three, that Jesus Christ was the third most influential person in the world. He said Jesus had an extraordinary and impressive personality. But in answering his own question, he was faced with the question that every person must face. How will you rank Jesus? 
as being the most influential person in your life? Not only how will you rank Jesus in history, but how will you rank him in your life? Is Jesus number one? Is he number three? Is he number six? Is he number eight? Number ten? Christians often say he's number one, but that's not how they live. They have a whole lot of other things that become more important. How do you answer Jesus? And the interesting thing is, how you vote uh, will not influence his rank. He is Lord and Savior. He is Master. And we are servants. So, here's the deal. The kingdom of God is at hand right now. The king is present. And he wants to rule in our lives. And the rest is up to you. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark and to be able to get a glimpse of Jesus in his early ministry and to see how his timing and his movements weren't always what we would think would be the best way to go. Lord, uh, teach us to be followers. Teach us submission and humility and patience and kindness. Lord, it's my prayer that you would have the the freedom to work in our lives, to point out uh, areas that we need to change, areas that we sometimes get sloppy in or where we, we, we let slip. Maybe it's time of the Word. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's a habitual sin problem that we dabble with. Father, I pray that um, you would work in our lives so that we would constantly want to recenter and refocus and be recalibrated and have our lives centered around you. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's our job to be his servants. Amen.